tonight we're looking at prayer as we continue through this series on spiritual disciplines. Uh, there's something like more than 500 prayers in the Bible, and yet I'd suggest that there's always more that we can learn from the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples, the example that he gave us. There's a depth to both the specifics and also the pattern as a whole. And we're going to be looking at Matthew 6, verses 5 through 13. And it's one of the two passages that the Lord's Prayer shows up in. But before we read the text, let's pray. O Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable to you and in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Matthew 6, verses 5 through 13. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts. And we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Prayer is seemingly universal. You'll find all religions have some sort of prayer. Libraries could be filled with the books written about prayer. It's something that we take for granted on the one hand, right? Everyone prays. And yet, on the other hand, so many of us begin to pray and immediately feel like we have no clue what we're doing. Even the most experienced and mature Christians can feel like they've never actually learned to pray properly. And in Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer, one of the disciples comes to him while he's praying and says, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. But here in Matthew's Gospel, it occurs within the context of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is teaching his disciples about Christian living, what it means to be a Christian. And what we see is Jesus treats prayer as an assumed part of the Christian life. It's not if, but when you pray. And what we find is that to be a disciple of Jesus means being well acquainted with prayer. For John Calvin, prayer was the chief exercise of faith. And there's a link between the gospel and prayer. Prayer was ordained for our sake. And all the treasures of the gospel that our eyes lay hold of, it is by prayer that we dig those treasures up. And so the gospel trains our heart to call upon God. And in this passage before us, Jesus is showing us what true Christian prayer looks like, and he gives us an example of how to pray. So the first thing that we see is that 
their Christian prayer has distinct characteristics. These are some characteristics that make Christian prayer Christian. In his instruction, Jesus begins with what not to do. In these two comparisons, we see how the way we pray is based on our understanding of who God is. You talk differently to different people based on who they are. You talk differently to a friend than you would a celebrity that you meet. And so what we see is that our understanding of God shapes our prayers, which leads us to the first distinct characteristic of Christian prayer, sincerity. Our prayers should be sincere, meaning that when we pray, we pray in order to encounter God. We pray to come before the throne of grace and not for some ulterior motive. What we see is that prayer is not used to promote ourselves or, or to show others our own religious superiority. In verses four to five to six, Jesus describes those who love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners. They love to be heard, and he describes them as hypocrites. They're doing this in order to be seen. And the language that Jesus uses is to go into your house, to go into your pantry perhaps, the, the only room in the house that might have a door. And what we see is that the, the reason he's using this language is that it is in solitude and secrecy that we find the antidote to pride. Solitude secures sincerity. We frequently find Jesus himself going out up onto the mountain or out into the desolate places to pray. And while the hypocrite offers a self-righteous prayer on display for everyone else, we pray to a God who sees in the secret places. And that's the only thing that matters for us as a Christian. No one ever needs to know that you've been, you've been praying. No one needs to praise you for it because God sees you. And this is true for all of the spiritual disciplines. Why do you attend church? Why do you sing? Why do you observe the Sabbath? Why do you read scripture? Why do you meditate? It isn't for the Instagram post. What we see is that these are not tools to draw attention to ourselves. Right before this, Jesus is saying, when you give, do so in secret. And then after this, he says, when you fast, do so in secret. And so what we find is solitude secures sincerity. That's the first of the characteristics. But Christian prayer is also characterized by being succinct. And I'm sure some of you are hoping I am as well tonight. But we are not to be like the hypocrites who are praying for show. But we're also not to be like the pagans, these Gentiles, as Jesus says, who are sincere but they continue on, and they babble on endlessly and repeatedly. The reason why we can pray in private is because we have a God who sees in the secret places. The reason why we can be succinct is because we have a God who already knows your need. Your God is not ignorant. Your God is not reluctant. Your God is not indifferent. Pagan gods require pagan prayers. 
but our God knows your need before you even go to him. And this transitions directly into the prayer that he gives us as an example. The, the, the temptation is to say, why do we pray at all then if he already knows? But what Jesus says, he draws an inference from this and says that not that we don't need to pray, but because your father already knows your need, therefore you pray like this. This kind of prayer brings relief. You can be brief. You don't need three to five sentences in a five-paragraph essay in which you conclude the introduction with a gripping thesis to get God's attention and then pray for everything and then conclude with a conclusion that, that reminds him of everything. Be assured that when you come before God, he knows your needs. You can be succinct. You can be brief. So we see that Christian prayer is to be sincere and succinct. Third, it's characterized by a security flowing from intimacy. Notice how Jesus begins this prayer. Our Father. We come to prayer in a secure relationship to God, assuming his willingness to hear us. He's willing to hear us because he's our Father. One word can make all the difference. Robert Baker and Martin Lucas were the king's printers, or royal printers, meaning that they were authorized to print the English Bible. In 1631, they were commissioned to reprint the King James Bible to make a more compact version. They made a serious mistake. See, they left out the word not in the seventh commandment so that it read as thou shalt commit adultery. This mistake caused this version of the Bible to be called the wicked Bible or the sinner's Bible. Jesus begins with father. Our understanding of fatherhood can be warped by earthly fathers. And yet there's a preciousness for the Christian as Jesus gives us this term to call God. Though imperfectly, we tend to have some sense of the transcendence of God. He is mighty. He is the God of all. He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. He dwells in inapproachable light. So we sense something of his transcendence. But one word makes all the difference. Because this one word might be the only thing that you have to cling to and to cry out when you're in the midst of suffering and sorrow, when you're pouring out your soul to God, and you are even concerned whether he hears you, this word offers us comfort, and it sustains us because it reminds ourselves that we belong to him. It might be the only word that you have at times, because the God that we pray to has set his affection upon you. He has redeemed you by the blood of Christ. And when you pray to him, he's not looking at your best works that are filthy rags. But rather, he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ in which you have been clothed. 
So when you come to him, we see that there is no clearer demonstration of his love for us than that we should be called children of God. Jesus, by his life and death, makes it possible to have this encounter with God. The sin-saturated curtain that separated us from God's holy presence has been torn apart. And what we see is the Father beckoning us, calling us to come to the throne of grace and to bring our request. And as a parent gets down on the level of their child to show them that they have their complete attention, so the psalmist says that our Father inclines his ear to us. You have security through intimacy. He's not merely a father. He's our father, your father. Christian prayer is sincere, succinct, and secure. Christian prayer has these distinct characteristics. But second, there's also a priority to Christian prayer. There's six petitions in the Lord's Prayer, and they begin with the priority of God's interest. The first three petitions are his, for his name to be hallowed or, or kept holy, and then his kingdom to come and his will to be done. First, hallowed be thy name. The chief end of man is what? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. We keep his name holy in part by observing those characteristics of prayer but also as we seek first his kingdom and his will. Because what we find is Ezekiel 36 is the background of this, and God is concerned for his name to be kept holy because Israel is not reflecting what it's like to be children of God. And so we keep his name holy in part by seeking first his kingdom and his will. We pray for his kingdom to come. In the present, we desire that Christ would rule in our hearts and that his kingdom would go forth, that the kingdom of Satan and sin would find its end, that it would be completely destroyed. But there's also a future dimension as well. History is moving forward. History is moving forward to a point in which the kingdom that has come, the kingdom which has been inaugurated, will be consummated when Christ comes again. Do you pray for the kingdom to come with the same type of excitement and hope as a child looking forward to their birthday? Our hope is not in this life, but in the resurrection to come. Then we ask for his will to be done. The crowds followed Jesus while he was accomplishing their will. But as soon as he began to teach the will of God, to, to be willing to lay down your life for another, they deserted him, they abandoned him. And to, not, to deny oneself. So what we find is when Jesus is teaching us to pray this, he's going to pray the very same thing in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he desires the cup to pass, and yet he submits to the will of his Father. Jesus is not teaching us to pray anything that he himself will not do. Christian prayer has distinct characteristics. It has priorities. And third, it has individual requests. 
the second set of these petitions are focused on our needs. The, the first request is for God to meet our daily need. That's the fourth petition. We entrust ourselves to God for provision. As the church father Augustine points out, this is not for our luxuries, but for necessities. However, in his larger catechism, Martin Luther points out a social dimension to this, in which we pray for all to have plenty, so that all might benefit in a society of plenty, and it's a warning against exploiting the poor. And in the fifth petition, we focus on our relationship to God and others as we confess our sinfulness. Jesus is directly connecting our willingness to forgive with the forgiveness that we will receive. What we find is that bitterness and grudges have no place in a heart that has been forgiven an insurmountable debt. And our willingness to forgive is a sign that we have experienced ourselves that forgiveness. And then in the final petition, we pray that our Father might watch over us, guarding us from evil and not leading us into temptation or testing. The, the language being used suggests the same thing being said twice, first negatively, then positively. We pray not to fall into the temptation of the evil one and that God would rescue us from the evil one's power. At the beginning and end of Jesus' earthly ministry, Jesus faced the truest form of temptation. And he did it alone. And you and I can pray to be protected from temptation because Jesus wasn't on our behalf. These are the individual requests of prayer. So we see the distinct characteristics of Christian prayer, its priorities, and its individual requests. Now I want to briefly look at a pattern to do, offer something practical. The Lord's Prayer is something that we pray every Sunday, and it's something that I would recommend you pray in your own devotional time. And yet, it's a template for us. Pray like this. And I'll say a pattern because there are plenty of patterns out there. There's, there you'll find countless versions, but you might be familiar with this one. It's easy to remember. Acts. A-C-T-S, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. These are four elements that we find in biblical prayer. First, A, adoration. God's name is kept reverent and hallowed when we praise him for his character and his works. When we properly name the one to whom we pray. He is the creator of all things. He is immortal, invisible, the only wise God. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is Father. He is, he is the one who demonstrates steadfast love. He is a rock. He is a fortress. He is our redeemer. He is a shield. But he's also delivered his people from slavery, from their enemies. And you can also recount the ways in your life that he has demonstrated his faithfulness to you. We adore God when we name him for who he is and what he's done. Adoration. Then see confession. 
When we understand the God we come before, we better understand ourselves. His light exposes our sinfulness. Dale Ralph Davis says that we never run out of prayer material because our sins will always supply us with more. This is an opportunity to confess specific sins. But our confession is not to be separated from repenting or forsaking and turning away from those sins. But even as we confess, we are also not groveling in the pit of despair. We grieve those sins, we seek to mortify those sins, and we remember the cost of our redemption is the blood of Christ. But then we seek the Spirit's help in mortifying those sins and in putting those sins to death. Confession. Then T, thanksgiving. We see adoration and confession and even supplication in the Lord's Prayer, but we don't specifically see thanksgiving. But Paul says, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your request known to the Lord. In 1 Samuel 7, the Philistines have come out for battle, and the Israelites are in something of a bind. They ask Samuel, they implore Samuel to pray on their behalf, and he does. And God responds by, with a thunderstorm, routing the Philistines, and the day is saved. Samuel responds by stacking these stones, and he calls them Ebenezer's, rock of help. Because up to this point, God has been faithful. And what he's saying is, Israel, I know you. You're going to forget this. As a nation, you have shown yourself to have something of a memory problem. And so every time that you see these stones, I want you to remember what God has done here. Remember his faithfulness. You too have Ebenezer's. You too have points throughout your life in which you can say, up to this point, God has been faithful. And then a little bit further along, up to this point, he has been faithful. You may not realize it in the moment. These are things that you may reflect back upon. And you see how God was working faithfully and his provident hand was overshadowing and protecting you. But you remember these things. We have an opportunity in Thanksgiving, just as Psalm 107 that we sang earlier gives us a rich example of his faithfulness. Having a time of thanksgiving in our prayer helps train our memories in the good times so that we're less prone to forget in the difficult times. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and finally supplication. We see in the Lord's Prayer a model of praying for our needs, but we pray for the needs of others. We pray for the needs of our family, our friends, fellow church members, the city, state, and government officials. We pray for his kingdom work throughout the world. We pray for our enemies. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make known your requests to the Lord. Now, between family worship, between Thanksgiving lunch, between private devotions, not all prayers need to follow this model perfectly. It's a model. They don't need to contain all of these elements. Nobody in your family is looking for a 10-minute intercessory prayer at Thanksgiving. But sometimes they'll be in a different order. 
Some sections might be longer than others. But what these categories do is to help us analyze our prayers and to see if they're lopsided. Are we missing something? But also, prayer is not a lone discipline. Prayer is on the same two-way street as our previous two spiritual disciplines, meditation and reading scripture. As you read scripture and meditate on what you've read, your prayers will be enriched. And as you pray, your meditations and reading of scripture will be more fruitful. Here's the thing. You will never pray perfectly. You will never be able to adequately adore God. As you confess sins, you are going to leave some out. We can never count the ways of God's providence in order to be thankful enough. And we can certainly never pray for everything that we need. But even right now, you are being prayed for. Jesus Christ is your high priest, and he ever lives to intercede for you. He is your mediator. He is your advocate before the Father. Just as he told Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. So he prays for you. The same Jesus that bears five bleeding wounds is right now at the right hand of the Father, praying for you that your faith may not fail, that whatever strife and whatever difficulty you may be facing, whatever fiery trial you are going through, whatever bitter taste this life, this sinful world has left you with, he's praying that your faith may not fail. And his prayers are perfect. So have no doubt, have no hesitation or fear that as you go before God, because the Father beckons you, come. And he will hear you with all your weariness, with all your anger, with all of your grief and all your anxieties and fears. He knows them, and he will not turn you away. As we close in prayer, I'd like to do something different, but fitting. I'd like to close in the Lord's Prayer. I will begin us in prayer, and I'll give you the cue to join in. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And yet you know us intimately. You have knitted us together in the wombs of our mother. We confess our sinfulness as we daily fall short of loving you with our entire being and our neighbors as ourselves. And yet we rejoice and give thanks for the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ and your continued works of providence in our daily lives. And we ask that you draw us to yourself and to cause us to pray without ceasing, even as we pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples, saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, 
but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.